Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Law. I'm Jim Vonderheit. Today's conversation is with the Dean of Harvard Law School, Martha Minow, about her new book, In Brown's Wake, Legacies of America's Educational Landmark. Plural noun legacies indicates the fact that Professor Minow's book is about other consequences, as well as the consequences for racial integration in the United States, of the famous Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision. Robert L. Carter, legal assistant to Thurgood Marshall at the NAACP, said, looking back in 1979, that, quote, the basic postulate of our strategy and theory in Brown was that the elimination of enforced, segregated education would necessarily result in equal education. This was the origin of the adage about public funding, that green follows white, that funding would flow to schools where there were white children. So in some ways, the plaintiffs in Brown versus Board of Education sought the racial integration of schools as a strategy rather than the ultimate goal. The ultimate aim was better opportunities for African Americans. And the shared American value of equality translated that project into the language of constitutional law. As Dean Minow's book book shows, other groups have done that same translation and had similar successes. Historians know that the court's adoption of the NAACP's language of equality in the unanimous 1954 opinion in Brown led to many famous unintended consequences, backlash over many years, the civil rights movement crystallizing, and backlashes against backlashes against backlashes over the following generations. But the book we're discussing today, In Brown's Wake, was born from the observation that history has not fully acknowledged other unintended consequences of the case that Carter helped to argue. In these other areas, the legacy of Brown is political success for reformers of all kinds who have linked their causes with the language of racial integration and made significant gains for other populations both in the U.S. and abroad. So the Brown decision is not only about race, Even if Carter and his colleagues were wrong about the flow of green in the United States, 
Dean Minow contends that Brown's status as a landmark decision is in no way exaggerated. Until now, in fact, much of its story has not yet been told. One note about today's interview, Professor Minow and I were talking over a bad phone connection. So her voice is not as clear as we would like in this podcast, but the interview is terrific, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Dean Minow. Thank you uh, for joining us here, and we're grateful for the opportunity to talk about In Brown's Wake, your new book, and uh, appreciate your taking the time. Thanks. Well, maybe before we talk about the book, you could um, tell us a little about yourself and your background, previous projects, and a little bit about things that led up to your start on the work of this book. scholarship, maybe you could say a little bit about the themes that uh, might have prefigured or not led up uh, to this particular topic. Have, have you got previous interests that connected in surprising ways, or has this been a, a recurring theme in all your work? Well, I think a little bit of both. So I, I've written several books uh, that deal with education and uh, equality and identity in, in, in various ways. Have another area of my own work that deals with international uh, ethnic and religious conflict and post conflict uh, resolutions. And actually, this book reflects uh, both of those uh, strands of my work uh, both the attention to schooling and identity on the one hand, and the also concerns about what happens to societies that are uh, really marked by sharp conflicts and sharp divisions between groups. And having done work as well as scholarship in communities following uh, genocide and mass crimes against humanity, uh, I have felt redoubled in my commitment to prevention and to exploring how the structure of something as basic as elementary schooling can contribute uh, either to peace or to conflict. I wonder about the disciplinary aspect of this. How do you think your work is different because you're a law professor? as opposed to a sociologist or a, a student of culture generally and conflict? Not entirely sure. I probably spend more time talking about uh, uh, courts and legislatures, but I, I uh, am often viewed within the legal academy as someone who's very interdisciplinary. So um, I'm sure someone outside my head would be better equipped to answer that question. <laughs> well, Brown is a, is a quintessential example of... Uh, courts taking positive action uh, and 
seeking to enact social change. Um, maybe you can tell us about the legacy of Brown uh, in the obvious sense first, and then we'll get into thinking about some of your chapters. Well, Brown versus Board of Education is probably the most famous decision of the United States Supreme Court, uh, and it did uh, produce a unanimous decision by that court in is equality of opportunity. Um, the mixing category you seem to suggest is separate. Do you want to say a little bit about that distinction that there's the, the goal of mixing on its own terms is one thing you explore. The goal of equality of opportunity more broadly um, seems distinct in some, from some perspectives. Building a sense of uh, 
network uh, and friendships and uh, mutual experiences um, would be essential for certain forms of education and certain benefits of education in a democratic society where people are uh, hopefully participating in politics together and having a sense of the civic good or in areas like professional education to become a lawyer. Uh, it would not be possible to actually have access to the same kind of educational opportunity in a separated, segregated institution uh, since the bar itself uh, requires so many uh, elements of social interaction and connections with people, uh, other, other lawyers in the bar. And so that, that recognition that integration itself needed to be a goal was achieved by the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, as a strategy in the cases leading to Brown. And at the same time, because the cases focused on the southern schools, the assumption by the lawyers was once the court struck down legally mandated segregation, students would be integrated in schools. Because in the southern schools, it required busing to actually separate the students. There was so much actual residential integration. But as time emerged, uh, that assumption was actually proven false. Uh, not only the resistance to integration uh, is to blame, but also the different residential patterns that existed even in 1954 in the North, and certainly over time, uh, have really grown even more persistent uh, with uh, residential segregation, separation, uh, reflecting private choices, but also public choices, uh, zoning decisions, where to place highways, where to build public housing. And that residential segregation has made this ideal of integration much more difficult to achieve in schools. Right. So the self-segregation has, has uh, stepped in, and it sounds like led to uh, a, a real uh, reversal, uh, movement backward on the, the mixing itself, the integration, which you say the lawyers saw as a means to some extent rather than an end. That is, that the equality of opportunity could only come when the races were mixed in the schools. The money would not flow. The uh, attention would not flow unless uh, the, ch the children were mixed by race. Uh, do you think there's reason for hope that even now, even when there's been reversal in the mixing, there might still be equality of opportunity uh, nonetheless? Well, let me, let me take apart the question in a couple uh, of ways. Uh, yes, the, the lawyers like Thurgood Marshall and uh, Jack Greenberg and others involved in the strategy did talk explicitly about uh, green follows white, right. the dollars would follow where the white students were. And in that sense, integration was a means, not uh, an end. But it would be wrong to suggest it was only a means. Uh, again, growing from the prior cases they had litigated dealing with higher education, uh, they quite explicitly talked about uh, social integration as a goal uh, in the struggle leading to Brown. And uh, only in 1974, when the Supreme Court actually uh, ruled that a remedy for demonstrated intentional segregation could stop at the borders of the district, that's the case of Milliken versus Bradley dealing with Detroit, did the court give a real green light uh, to people who wanted to make sure that they could send their kids to uh, largely white 
stop at the city borders, and that really gave a jump uh, to the movements uh, of people to the suburbs, the white flight movement. So uh, when you ask about prospects for the full-blown vision of integration right now when it comes to race, what's striking is that workplaces are much more integrated now racially than they were in focus on uh, as a section of your one of your chapters is the fact that Department of Defense schools have led the way uh, in providing good results on equality of opportunity across a number of lines and it sounds like a, a good bit of that is attributable to the military culture where integration has been a fact for so long and leadership is not uh, split by race. Achievement. And then finally, 
the Department of Defense schools also have a strong commitment that I think is present in the military itself to use whatever educational method it takes to help each uh, individual achieve his or her potential. Uh, and that flexibility about learning styles, teaching styles, I think has led to their great success. It's tremendous to read about uh, and imagine the world maybe just as a dystopic vision, but the fact that the military orders parents, <laughs> simply orders them, if they're uh, part of the service, they have to go to parent-teacher conferences. It's hard to imagine uh, a United States in which parents are, are required by law to follow through in that kind of way, but it does suggest that there's some positive uh, piece there that uh, law could interact in a different way with communities. Uh, I don't know if that's imaginable to you at all, but um, well, certainly it's powerful. It's something that's not quite as uh, coercive as you, you have described, but uh, a, a policy by private employers to accommodate parents uh, who uh, want to attend their students' uh, uh, activities at schools and to be involved. Uh, and I can imagine uh, many, many private employers finding a benefit in doing that. Right. Um, one reason I asked that question about uh, coercion, which is obviously out of place in some ways, is to pivot toward asking you about the model you've had in mind of the relationship between law and society as you worked on this book and, and brought together so much knowledge uh, to address the question of Brown's legacy. Uh, do you see there's, in a way, the Supreme Court opinion caused many things to happen, but it's also the case that uh, society moves in its own glacial ways. Do you, you think it's safe to consider the legal edicts as having caused a lot of the things you describe, and for example, in terms of residential self-segregation? moving to 
are white. That's much increased uh, since uh, 1970. Right. So these um, pieces surely have a lot of different causes, but it's it's really interesting to think about the way legal shifts actually drive that sort of thing. even in 
religious schools. So initially, you, as you say, the, the voucher movement seemed to be uh, casting itself as exit strategies for well-off white children, but to reverse the rhetoric and to reverse the strategy, uh, the voucher proponents treated it the other way as an opportunity for poor and uh, students of color. examples along these these lines and these steps. I wonder if you want to say something as well about the uh, more recent decision that used uh, reached back to Brown uh, and insisted that the way that uh, an integration plan, excuse me, a, a district's voluntary plan to promote racial mixing uh, was barred because it was race conscious. You're, you have some harsh words for that decision. Um, as oversimplifying and, and pushing colorblindness, uh, but it does seem to appropriate some of Brown's uh, language. Do you like, characterize that correctly? when 
he did in the 1970s. What's important to note about this case, parents involved, is that it actually um, is, is only four members of the court, not a majority, who uh, believed that such a use of uh, racial uh, classification should never be used or almost never be used, uh, even uh, to achieve school desegregation. And there are five members of the court who said it often could be used. Um, uh, the fifth member who made the crucial vote striking down the plans in that case, Justice Kennedy, um, felt that the justification was not demonstrated in those particular circumstances. But his opinion goes on at great length to argue that diversity is itself a compelling reason justifying the use of race and that there could be many other strategies to pursue voluntary integration. This has left uh, school systems around the country trying to figure out uh, in the intervening four years and going forward what is permitted and what is not. And it's a complicated story. It certainly does reflect a turn away from the vision of integration that Brown, that Brown itself uh, embraced. This seems a good time to ask about uh, your work in your, in your other role as dean of Harvard Law School. This is something I'm sure you think about quite a lot as you put together the entering class and your your uh, process there. Also, of course, in uh, creating and defending overall policies uh, in which diversity is at stake. Is it is are these same issues uh, and the legal ramifications and the Supreme Court's current composition on your mind as you do that work? education, uh, diversity is a compelling interest, and uh, we, like uh, every other uh, major school that I know, believe that as well, that the classroom is enriched when students bring different kinds of backgrounds and experiences and perspectives, and we spend a lot of time uh, composing a class to make sure that there's quite a, a many, many degrees of uh, diversity, ideological, uh, life experience, geographic, uh, uh, and so uh, race is certainly a part of that, as is language, uh, nationality, um, and uh, we have uh, had the great opportunity uh, here to, to be able to compose classes that are extraordinarily diverse, and as a result, every single student benefits, and so does the faculty. What do you think about the court's suggestion that in 25 years this may no longer be a compelling interest? Race, that is, consciousness of race, may need to, uh, in some legal way, fade out of admissions committee's decisions. Um, I'm wait and see. <laughs> okay. Um, it's, it's a remarkable statement from the court about the future that that, that kind of prediction kicks in. It certainly also resonates with uh Justice Thomas's extraordinary uh, frustration with Yale Law School and the way that he felt the cloud was over his experience there because he was African-American. Um, but we'll put that role, uh, the higher education issue, to the side and return to schools. What's so striking, though, is the um, difference between those two contexts. So the question of the allocation of scarce seats in uh, extremely selective institutions is very different than the question of students 
public schools where every student has a place. And that's something that the court neglected in its parent-involved decision, the majority. It treated these as if they were all the same, whereas in the, the public school system, there's no question that every student will have an opportunity, and the student assignment uh, is in part to make sure that those opportunities are equal. Entirely different question, how to allocate scarce seats. Right. I was really interested by the alternative possibility, which doesn't directly address racial mixing, but apparently there's a five to four split now on whether socioeconomic status is a fair way to sort and assign students, uh, and that is okay now, according to the Supreme Court. Does that seem to you a decent proxy for, for racial mixing and some of the things Brown was about? Well, the court did it by a five to four vote some time ago reject the claim that classification uh, based on socioeconomic status deserves the same kind of heightened scrutiny that the court gives to classifications based on race with the paradoxical effect that allows school systems to assign students based on their parents' uh, economic status. Uh, no problem doing that. And many school systems do that, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, among them. Uh, and since there is a high correlation between socioeconomic status and race, that often can produce some racial uh, integration in schools. Yeah, I'm sorry I had the law backwards on that. Um, it is. It does seem a compelling policy uh, possibility, uh, and there's research about it. I wonder where you come down in, ter in terms of thinking if every school district did that, how much of the vision of Brown might be achieved in using socioeconomic status as a proxy? It, it very much depends on what the composition is of the community, whether it would produce racial integration. Quite apart from racial integration, I do think socioeconomic integration can have a value in and of itself. So if, that, if the court went the other way, though, these sorts of things could be imposed. <laughs> Sort of, right? If that 5-4 split came the other way such that heightened scrutiny was applied to socioeconomic status, then there would be judge-made remedies uh, basically about school district zoning, right, that neighborhoods would need to share their resources more fairly. I wonder if that would be a positive development or not. The funding issue is a huge issue, it seems, the funding by neighborhood. pursue the, that funding scheme question, that uh, winning that case, the Rodriguez outcome going the other way 
would lead to uh, a good implementation? and a very powerful set of explorations of the politics as drivers of the law, and that interconnection is really interesting. I wonder if you want to say anything about the other populations, for example, the disabled who have who've drawn on Brown in achieving more equality of opportunity in the schools. chapter also on the international repercussions, which is a really compelling read as well. Uh, the, this document created in 1954 really reverberated around the globe. Uh, I think another uh, 
um, actually life is complicated. So even in the example of the great successes for students with disabilities that we were discussing a moment ago, it's important to see that there have been uh, abuses uh, in the use of the rights for disabled students in the sense that uh, there's now new forms of racial segregation with uh, particularly black boys often being identified as having disabilities and sent to separate classes. Uh, so that one needs to be vigilant in implementing any kind of remedy for past harm because there can be new harms uh, consciously or unconsciously uh, in, the, in the new uh, phase of implementation. I definitely get the sense that the, the issue is full of paradoxes um, because individual treatment, individual educational best outcomes are sort of always the goal, but policy needs to be set with groups in mind. So the, the same dilemma can arise with regard to gender, and many people uh, in the women's movement look to Brown as a way to challenge the exclusion of girls from uh, the selective all-boys public schools. And that failed uh, in the Supreme Court of the United States, so it succeeded in state courts. And as a result, it is perfectly constitutional right now to have single-sex education under circumstances where there are comparable opportunities for students of each gender. Uh, and uh, for some students, that might be a great opportunity, and for other students, it may not. And so you're quite right. Uh, there's an ongoing challenge to figure out how to advance individual uh, opportunity and at the same time attend to the risk of stigma and inequality on the basis of group membership. That's well said. Thank you. Well, we've taken a good um piece of your day. I really appreciate your spending time with us. Is there anything that we uh, you'd like to add about the book? I certainly enjoyed making my way through it. Well, I, it, it's a delight to talk with you about it, and uh, it, it was a, a really an utterly fascinating experience to work on this book. Uh, and uh, I also enjoyed thinking about social science and the way that social scientists became expert witnesses in Brown, and that really launched a whole new relationship between law and social science. I became very interested in the treatment of American Indians and their education, and also Native Hawaiians. Uh, so it's a book uh, that I think uh, actually just opens up doors, and I hope others will follow uh, through uh, in, in walking through those doors, doing more research and more advocacy in each of those areas. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Dean Minow, for spending time to talk, talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Once again, the book is In Brown's Wake. Thank you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to you and your studies. Thanks. And thank you for joining us for New Books in Law. I'm Jim Vonderheit, your host. And my guest today was Dean Martha Minow of Harvard Law School. We were discussing her book, In Brown's Wake, Legacies of America's Educational Landmark. Thanks for being with us. Have a great month, and we'll be back with another book then. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway, and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.